3: This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We've talked on the show before about how American children are facing a mental health crisis. Did you know schools in Connecticut must now allow students the ability to take time off for their mental health? Coming up, we talk about this new law with state child advocate Sarah Egan. And we hear about other measures needed to support youth. One in six kids have mental health conditions. That conversation in just a bit. First, gun violence continues to impact local communities. In the upcoming session, state Senate Democrats have introduced a bill to increase funding for prevention efforts. And there are advocates in the community who are calling on lawmakers to create a statewide office of gun violence prevention. Joining us now to talk about this uh, on the phone is Bridgeport State Senator Marilyn Moore, who's chair of the legislature's Human Services Committee. Senator Moore, welcome back to the show.
0: Well, thank you for having me this morning.
3: Now we invited you on because you had written legislation last year that resulted in a committee on gun violence prevention and intervention uh, late last year. Uh, They put out a report and I want you to talk first about what prompted you to start this committee and some of the work that was done uh, to get state senators uh, to this place of thinking about how to fund a coordinated effort.
0: Thank you, Lucy. Well, I want the beginning of this is really uh, goes back to 2019 when there was an uh, uptick in violence in Bridgeport. And uh, I spoke to an organization asking, could they put together an advisory uh, task force in Bridgeport, just to look at Bridgeport? And from that, I learned so much about the work that was being done. In Bridgeport, but not really coordinated. So in 2021, I'm off on dates because I don't think there's been a real year since 2019. Right. Um, but in 2021, uh, through Public Act uh, 2135, and it was actually in Senate Bill One. We said, you know, there needs to be a way to look at this statewide and address these issues. At that time, there was an uptick in Hartford, and I think it's a three-year-old and a seven-year-old were innocent bystanders and uh, were shot. And so I figured we needed to do something right away, but we need to bring all these organizations together, and that's why that was the really pushed me to say, can we do a commission on gun violence intervention and prevention? And the legislation was written and it was passed and we had bipartisan support on passing that.
3: So when you look at the numbers again uh, on in the report you had wrote that on average someone is shot every day in Connecticut and when we look at uh, the number of homicides due to guns, 70 percent of those deaths are happening in Bridgeport, Hartford, and New Haven. And so when we talk about coordination, what was uh, surprising that the committee found in terms of you know all these efforts uh, to try to prevent gun violence but really no statewide strategy, Senator Moore?
0: Well not really. Everybody was and everybody is doing their own thing even though it's good work that they're doing. Uh, Many of them lack funding uh, many of them lack coordination of services. I think that Hartford has had the most uh, promising uh, organizations to come together and have done the, a lot of work on it. But I see it happening also in New Haven and Bridgeport where we have the highest incidence of gun violence. But at the end of the day, still, they're trying to find funding. They're you know putting glue together to keep their programs going. No intervention that connects us from... Bridgeport to New Haven to Hartford. Let me give you, for instance, when you read about someone who is doing a shooting, it's not always in their own town that they're doing the shooting. They'll travel from New Haven to Hartford or New Haven to Bridgeport and vice versa, right? So there's no connection to all of the programs working together to say this is the programs that we have. But I also think about the people on the ground, the kids playing uh, on a, on a ball park field. In Bridgeport and there's a shootout right and the kids scramble those kids are suffering from trauma once they are involved or they witness something like that and there's nothing that pulls it all together to say this happened in this town we need to get these services together and we need to fund them the other part of that Lucy is that even though there are a lot of people doing good work on the ground they're not evaluated they're not evidence-based but they are informed They understand their communities, and they're doing the work. They need assistance to help them make their program evaluated, to get it informed, informed, trauma-informed, evidence-informed, so we can know what works on the ground and what doesn't. And then we can fund the programs that need to be funded. And if it doesn't work, I say, why are you continuing it if you can't show that this is working?
3: So coordinating funding, as you mentioned, to go towards evidence-based community programs to help reduce uh, or to help prevent gun violence, but also to reduce street-level gun violence. Can you tell our listeners, Senator Moore, through your work on this committee, you know, what is being done to, to tackle you know, some of the systemic issues at the root of gun violence?
0: Well, you know there are programs that keep children off the street, that give them something else to do. To focus on. I think that's really important, that we're engaging young people at an early age in a variety of programs. The other piece that I happen to know that is real is that there are guns in these households, and the parents know that the kids have guns. But what I heard was sometimes they're protecting the family, and sometimes they're saying to us, well, if my son doesn't have something to protect himself, then someone's going to shoot him, and he's not going to have any protection. The root of the problem goes back to educating our kids about the damage a gun can do and how it can destroy a family, but it can destroy a family for generations. That education needs to take place in the schools on a regular basis, understanding the damage a gun can do. And then educating parents about there are other ways to protect your children besides them having a gun in the house then providing programs for kids so they can have something else to do. We're really working towards trying to get the schools to open up uh, in the evening. You know, uh, I've been around a long time. Night gym work for me, right? Having to go to school and being able to stay and not be out in the street makes a difference. The other thing that we learned is that so many kids are coming home and no one's there. They're left on their own all day long their parents are working multiple jobs and they're taking care of themselves. So there's not even a check-in to know that children, where your kids are, and what are they doing.
3: You know, this problem has been around uh, for some time. And when we talk about increasing funding to help particular programs, as you mentioned, Senator Moore, you know, where are the gaps in the terms of, you know, what has been tried but hasn't worked?
0: One thing that I I learned, and I did this in Bridgeport, uh, trying to get a handle on bringing programs together that are addressing uh, youth gun violence and other types of of crimes, just to get the kids working together. In Bridgeport, just under what I was able to do, I bought a $1.5 million. It's eight programs over uh, two years of receiving funding. To get those programs to work together, So they can identify where are the children that need the help, most help, right? And that we're not, we're not investing money in programs that don't work. So coordinating the efforts of eight programs, we created a collaborative. It's called the Bridgeport Youth Gun Violence Prevention Collaborative. And all of these programs are working together. So they're providing not only activities like baseball, but they're doing replay, yoga, they're providing counseling. They're taking kids to places where they have never been before to give them experiences. That's where the problem really lies, is that many of our kids don't have anything to do. But many times, it is the same kids who get to go to the Boys and Girls Club, right? It's like a routine. They grow up in the Boys and Girls Club. But there's a lot of children that don't have transportation to get to those places. There's a lot of children that stay in the house where just are hanging out in the street. It is important that we're coordinating all these programs together, city by city, because Hartford is different from New Haven. New Haven is different from Bridgeport. But a coordination of those efforts locally would be the place to start, not from a top-down approach. Every town knows what it needs, and that's where we need to begin. We need to get kids involved in developing uh, empty lots, uh, teaching them skills, getting into Housa Community College or the community colleges, that they can begin to learn a skill, that they can see something other than standing on a street corner making a quick dollar. Mm.
3: You mentioned it's important not to have a top-down approach. At the top of the show, I mentioned there are advocates and communities asking for a a statewide office of gun violence prevention. Do you think that that's needed, or are you worried that that would turn into a top-down approach?
0: I'm worried that that would... I am. I just think that if you, you don't focus on the children, and they're not engaged, and it's not community-led, we have, what, that's what we have right now. I don't see it changing, right? One of the other things that we had talked about in Bridgeport is creating a trauma center, not just a, a mobile unit, but an actual trauma center that's community-based. So when there is like a shooting or some incident, there's some place for people to go or there's people that can reach out into the community. you know. This boots on the ground has always worked. That's one thing that always works, people on the ground ready to mobilize at any moment.
3: But how do you get that, that statewide coordination if you, there isn't a, you know, an office, a particular, um, I guess, commission looking at this uh, and helping well, these local communities, Senator Moore?
0: So when, when you say office, I'm thinking of a commission that is an office. But I'm saying that there has to be someone there who's coordinating and evaluating and putting together a plan statewide, bringing in Bridgeport, New Haven, Waterbury, Hartford, bringing them together. So there was an advisory, right? That advisory covered all of Connecticut and covered all of the organizations or representatives from the organizations that are doing that work. That advisory stay in place and work with that commission can help them guide on what the path is. And I don't think we can create a commission and, and out the box they're going to get all this work done. I think there has to be a year of planning, pulling it together, identifying what's working. There has to be mapping of programs to know what's existing in the community. I think it's, it's almost a two- or three-year rollout to get it to where it needs to be. What did
3: you yeah. think of Governor, uh, Senator Moore, what did you think of Governor Lamont's proposal uh, the other week on tackling uh, gun violence in communities? You know, He'd mentioned, uh, you know, increasing uh, police. I mean, what's your take on that?
0: So I met with uh, uh, the governor in uh, around Thanksgiving time to talk about this project. Police are not the answer. It has to be a multifaceted approach. If you're doing the right way of doing community policing in each town, that's fine. The governor is really high on project longevity, which is a police-based inter- intervention, and that's fine place. But it's not the answer every place. But it is a place for it to be working with other organizations from the hospitals. There's a there's a program uh, at the hospitals where if someone is shot, there's a team that comes together to make sure no one else comes into the hospital, there's not another shooting. That's an intervention program. And then there's there's group violence intervention on the ground doing that work. And there's violence violence interruption. All of those things working together work. I've not been able to convince the governor that we need a multi-faceted approach to doing this and that there's not one program that can address the ills in all of our communities.
3: State Senator Marilyn Moore, again, she's chaired the legislature's Human Services Committee. I believe there's a public hearing coming up on a a statewide uh, office for gun violence and prevention. Uh, What are you going to be looking uh, for or watching for in the next uh, couple of months as this session uh, continues?
0: So we're also doing um, the 24th. We're bringing youth in to do a more, not a public hearing, but um, a informational hearing to have the hear hear the voices of the kids on what they think they need and what's important to them the public hearing will be a lot like what we did for the two public hearings for the gun violence where people will come in and talk about what they've experienced why it's important to get this work done or some people may say it's not necessary but it's important for the legislators and the public health to hear because this is a public health issue It's important for them to hear from the community and the people involved and others about what needs to be done to get the support to get this legislation passed.
3: Senator Moore, thank you so much for joining us today on the show.
0: Thank you so much, Lucy.
3: You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lisa Nalbethanchel. Coming up, we're going to talk more about children's mental health, including a new law that requires schools to permit students from kindergarten through grade 12 to be able to take mental health wellness days. Do you have a question about this, you can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nava Late in 2021, the U.S. Surgeon General issued a public health advisory warning that youth mental health had worsened between 2009 and 2019. And during the pandemic, symptoms of depression and anxiety among youth had doubled. In Dr. Vivek Murthy's report, researchers point to a variety of factors contributing to this crisis, from the growing use of digital media, increasing academic pressure, and limited access to mental health care. Broader stressors like racism, gun violence, and income inequality also are factors. Now a new Connecticut law signed last summer focuses on youth mental health, and among the provisions is the requirement that schools allow K through 12 students to take up to two mental health wellness days a year. Joining us now to talk about this proposal is a college student from Wilton, Connecticut, who helped advocate for mental health wellness days. Vignesh Subramanian is a sophomore at SUNY Stony Brook University. Vignesh, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you, Lucy. It's good to be here.
3: As I mentioned, uh, in the spring of 2021, you, I believe, reached out to your state senator, Will Haskell, to advocate for mental health wellness days for students. Uh, so talk about what inspired you to, to propose this in Connecticut.
2: That's right. Um, well, I worked with, as you said, lawmakers, including Senator Haskell, to draft uh, Section 19 of Senate Bill Number no. 2 last spring, uh, which allows K-12 students to take up to two days off each year. Um, And I guess the inspiration from it was really uh, from my own experience as a high school student. I graduated in June of 2020, and in the preceding years, I had noticed that a lot of my peers who had attempted to seek mental health care, uh, both in school and outside of the home elsewhere, um, didn't have many options to turn to and often felt as though school was more of a barrier rather than a place um, to seek care safely. Um, uh, We, working with lawmakers, we uh, realized that mental health days are particularly helpful for some of those students who have learning disabilities or dysfunctional family relationships that can get in the way of them seeking care. Um, and we, we noted that many of these students tend to be disproportionately uh, punished for episodes like outbursts, anxiety attacks, and drastic drastic changes in behavior that are conflated with moodiness. Um, because many of these kinds of episodes are often undiagnosed and not covered under the definitions of illness that schools and state education departments use to approve sick days. So we thought this was an essential measure to take to allow students time to access care.
3: You mentioned you graduated uh, in the spring of 2020, so the first year of this pandemic. What did you see among your peers, Vignesh? Tell me more about when we talk about how youth are experiencing, you know, higher rates of anxiety and depression, you know, how you saw that manifest in your peers.
2: Absolutely. Well, uh, my year had graduated at the height of the first wave of the pandemic. Um, And I think going into the quarantine, many concerns that may have been, you know, unnoticed by my peers Um, were suddenly exacerbated, thrown into sharp relief, because um, as quarantine set in, uh, many of us lost contact with our friends or um, were forced to distance both physically um, and uh, connection-wise from close relations and loved ones. And the support network that we typically come to rely on or maybe even take for granted uh, were suddenly not available. And I noticed that many of my peers um, began reaching out in ways they uh, didn't often do to people who they uh, often didn't talk to or to uh, private professionals, private practitioners, um, because school counselors and social workers were suddenly um, off the table. And uh, going into the fall of 2020, um, a suicide had taken place in my hometown of Wilton, Connecticut. And I think that really opened up conversations in my hometown about mental health as a whole. Um, It wasn't a subject that we had really focused on, but... uh, You know, it was the conversation that needed to be had. And um, going into the spring of 2021, that was the really the spark that led to conversations with lawmakers about uh, what measures we could take to allow students uh, to or encourage students to seek care when they return to school.
3: I wanted to bring into the conversation Sarah Egan, who was Connecticut's child advocate. Uh, Sarah, you know better than anyone about uh, the youth mental crisis a mental health crisis, especially when we see higher rates of children showing up in emergency departments, uh, lack of access uh, to care. And so I'm wondering if you can respond to what Vigness shared, but also this idea of having you know, mental health wellness days for
1: students uh, throughout the school year. Yeah. So one, I appreciate uh, the advocacy that youth did for for themselves around um, the need for mental health days, and I think it's an important um, it's an important bit of self advocacy by kids um, and young adults. And I think you know what I'm hearing is what you know today is is what we hear every day, right? How much pressure um, children are under? Um, it, how much pressure everyone is under? You know, our teachers and, and other educators in the building, you know, parents and grandparents and members of our community. Um, and I think the Mental Health Day legislation is, it's important in some ways, though, Lucy, it's symbolic, right? And I think it is really just the first step or a step in a journey that is, is, is very big, um, that we must take, and a journey towards transformation of how we think about mental health care, of how we approach mental health care, how we support, we'll stick today with students, with students, how we support students and their teachers and administrators and and other educators in the building. Um, And I just wanna be very clear that while I think the mental health day legislation is important for kids, um, it is, we have so much work to do to really transform our system of support and wellness for children and to move away from the notion, the historic and and persistent notion that mental health care is treatment for disease and a response to children's non-conforming behavior and and move towards a healthcare and wellness and education system that recognizes wellness and positive development um, as part of a foundation of what all people need, including our students.
3: Let's talk about the educational setting because even Vignesh responded about or talked about uh, social workers and uh, CHIT just did a story over the weekend that in Connecticut, I think the ratio is one school social worker to 580 students, which is much larger than the national standard. And so when we talk about the support that's in place to help kids, uh, can you talk about that, Sarah, you know, this, some Uh, districts not having required social workers?
1: Yeah, so I've been reading those same articles, too. And one of the things um, that I've been commenting on to folks is, look, the, hiring more social workers um, would be great, right? Social workers are great. They're a great addition to school staff. Um, I don't know that there are enough social workers out there to be able to hire as many as our schools would need to support a treatment model of mental health care for children. So I think it's important to think about how to support social, you know, the the workforce around social workers and integrate social work and other mental health professionals into the school staff. But a medical model approach to children's mental health, right, that, that that sort of represents, I feel strongly will never be enough. I think that we need to transform and we need to transform what our children's day looks like. How we support teachers in the classroom. How we. Su- what our curricular expectations are. I, you know, I read this morning in the Washington Post that uh, the Florida Legislature is, wants to make financial literacy a um, a curricular requirement in school, which you know seems like a good idea. But it 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 just is is another example of got me thinking of how you know how we uh, what our curricular expectations are. FOR TEACHERS AND CHILDREN, HOW WE, ONCE CHILDREN ENTER GRADE SCHOOL, HOW WE ARE SUPPORTING THEIR EXECUTIVE FUNCTIONING, THEIR PROBLEM SOLVING, THEIR CONFLICT RESOLUTION, THEIR ADAPTIVE SKILLS, THEIR LIFE SKILLS, um, ALL OF THEIR SOCIAL EMOTIONAL DEVELOPMENT, RIGHT? AND HOW WE MAKE THAT A MEANINGFUL PART OF EACH DAY SO THAT WE HAVE A PUBLIC HEALTH AND PREVENTION APPROACH TO CHILDREN'S WELLNESS AND MENTAL HEALTH IN ADDITION TO THE CONTINUUM OF TREATMENT RESOURCES THAT SHOULD BE AVAILABLE TO ALL CHILDREN Um, in their communities and in their schools. But I think it's that continuum of prevention and wellness that that we need to be shifting to.
3: You're hearing Sarah Egan here on Where We Live. She's Connecticut's child advocate. As we talk about uh, mental health and and how to help and support children uh, pegged to this new law in Connecticut that tells uh, schools that you know students should be able to take at least two mental health wellness days in the school year. If you have a question about this or you wanted to join in on this conversation, the number is 888-720-9677 mm-hmm. or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Vignesh Subramanian is also here. Uh, he's a recent uh, high school graduate from Wilton, Connecticut, now a sophomore at SUNY Stony Brook University. He helped uh, advocate for this proposal in Connecticut to have mental Health Wellness Days. Vignesh, I wanted to hear how you r- respond to what Sarah shared with us about, you know, the pressures that students are under and this, as she mentioned, needing this whole continuum uh, to, to respond to, to children, uh, not just thinking about it uh, as a piecemeal effort.
2: Definitely. <clears throat> well, I think we absolutely agree on the need for a model focused on treatment being provided in medical settings nobody wants schools to be the front line of services uh, for young people we don't want uh kids and teens to be dependent on teachers and counselors alone but the reality of the situation is as it stands right now schools are the de facto providers of support services for young people counselors and social workers are the providers that are in closest proximity to children and therefore they are inclined to seek help from them first Um, and uh, I just want to return to the other point about mental health days, because I think that ties in. Um, the nuances of district policy and education policy at the state level, as well as at uh, the level of the municipality, um, often doesn't make exceptions for uh, conditions that a child may have uh, that warrant them needing to take a break from school. Um, as I mentioned before, sometimes that can mean anxiety attacks or drastic changes in behavior that haven't been previously diagnosed. Um, and that's significant because a child can't get a sick note from a doctor the same way they could for a physical condition. And I think that's why mental health days are not so much symbolic as an important step to take. Um, and many states have taken them. Uh, Oregon Oregon, and Utah are uh, among those that have, um, because these mental health days do provide reprieve from a primary stressor in many students' lives, which is school itself. And I think that's the central idea that we're trying to get at here, that we need to prioritize health over education alone and that parity has to be established between mental health and physical health, the way we've used them in the educational setting as well as uh, the medical setting. Mm-hmm.
3: Coming up, we're going to hear from the National Alliance on Mental Illness about mental health wellness days and and how parents and schools should approach this uh, when a child uh, is struggling or is being open and telling you that they need a break. Again, you can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. Vignesh, I was looking at uh, when this was being debated last year, then uh, Acting State uh, Education Commissioner Charlene Russell. Tucker uh, submitted written testimony that, you know, while the State Department of Education agrees with and understands the importance of supporting student mental health, there was some concern about this idea of allowing students to remain home from school, which does not necessarily achieve the outcome of improving the student's well-being. I'm looking at a report from the Hartford Current. How do you respond to
2: that? Sure. Um, Well, I think state education departments in general have every incentive to maybe not support mental health days the way advocates would like them to, um, because it is an ongoing concern that students may engage in absenteeism from the classroom by taking more mental health days than they're allowed. Uh, But mental health days could be capped the same way other sick days are. Uh, We don't have to treat the situation any differently than any other days. And the reality is Many students simply lie about the reasons they take absence from schools. If those, if the reasons they're absent from school are mental health related, because there is no explicit provision allowing them to take uh, or declare a reason to be mental health uh, related, um, you know the the issue with the issue with chronic absenteeism, or the fact that students may be not actively participating in the classroom, isn't so much caused by mental health days as it is caused by root factors that mental health days may provide reprieve for. Um, When this when similar provisions concerning mental health days were passed in Oregon, for example, student advocates pointed out that many students are subjected to presenteeism in the classroom. They may be in the classroom on a day to day basis, but they are not actively engaged with uh, activities in the classroom. They can't complete classwork. They can't focus on what's going on or interact with teachers or even friends. Um, And if that's the case, why are we prioritizing education and keeping uh, kids glued to the seat when they could be taking the time to seek care elsewhere? That's what mental health days seek to do, to give, uh, you know, kids time uh, to seek care and uh, avoid the the situ- and a situation in which physical health and mental health must compete for a child's attention outside of school. Um, and it gives kids a break to deal with interfering prognosis or life situations um, that may be worsened by the stresses of school. Again, children in Connecticut are only allowed two mental health days a year, so it's not as though Uh, these days take a significant toll on a student's attendance record. And logistically, they can, again, be treated the same way as other sick days are.
3: Mm. Sarah Egan, I wanted to get your take on what Vignesh shared.
1: Yeah, no, so I agree with um, everything I've heard from Vignesh and he's very articulate in in describing, I think, the the need and and the the benefit of the mental health sick days. So I just want to clarify um, that I, I agree as Vignish is talking about, that many children do access direct care in schools. And so I want to be clear that I support that and and we want want kids to be able to access care where they are and where it's needed. Um, But my, my point earlier was that it has to be part of a continuum of a wellness and positive development supports that includes, uh, you know, those tier three uh, individual treatment options as well, but that we also have to think about that in the context of, and mental health days too, in the context of structural transformation in our approach to children's wellness development and mental health, and one of the things I've been thinking a lot about lately is the difference between preschool and grade school, right, and I know there are lots of them, but you think about what it takes to be a NIAC accredited preschool, you know, and, and how and, and all that that entails in, in terms of licensing requirements around staffing, staffing ratios, and a rubric for education and student and family engagement that focuses as much on child development and wellness and social emotional learning as it does on a cognitive development and emerging academic skills. And then once kids go into grade school, it's like all of that gets left behind, right? And teachers and parents and, and you know, other educators and students um, are in a very different framework. And I think to support the goals of the legislation, to support um, the transformation that is required, um, that, that we're compelled to, to, to embark on as a result of this children's mental health crisis, we have to be thinking about this the structure of learning and support and curricular expectations, staffing, implications for staffing and professional development um, for our in our schools themselves. Um, I hope that makes sense. And um, I'm trying to cover a lot of ground there. But I think that um, the continuum of mental health supports needs to exist within a um, within a stru- within a structure that we change for what Children's Day looks like in the context of school. And the last thing I'll say is one of the things I'm concerned about, right, you know, as kids have been going, you know, back to school during the pandemic and this emphasis on learning loss, and it's, you know, sort of imagine being out of school for a year, right? And because of, you know, crisis and medical problems. And then you come back to, oh, I'm sorry. Imagine being out of work for a year, right? And then you come back to work, and the expectation is, okay, you got to catch up on all the work that you missed, and you got to do all the new work that's coming in the door and the enormous pressure that would place on our colleagues and on us to be able to do that. Um, In some ways, I worry that that's what we're expecting from our kids. And so, you know, it's, you know, what happens day to day in the classrooms, you know, for our kids and teachers is so important. Um, And that's really the point that I'm making.
3: Delcy's calling in from West Haven. Delcy, what did you want to share?
4: Um, Good morning. I am a retired teacher and over the years, I saw our teaching time, teaching academics, being eaten up by the raising of children, feeding them, taking care of them, manners, mental health, all of those issues. And nowhere in the discussion do we talk about the parental role in all of these other things. Schools were designed to educate, and somehow schools have been expected to teach all these other factors that go into the raising of a child. And I think that we have to be more realistic about this. There aren't enough hours in a day to do everything you're asking a teacher to do. And in relation to the pandemic, I don't think we can teach children everything they missed, and the new things at the same time. I think we need to assess them when they come in, pick up where they left off, and go forward. They'll catch up. Maybe it'll take a year and a half, but they have their whole lives ahead of them, and we don't have to push it so hard, and maybe that would relieve some of the anxiety.
3: Thank you, Delce, for your call. A lot of pressure on educators, Sarah, but i wonder if you could speak to her point about, you know, the
1: teachers are expected to fill in all the gaps. I know. I hear that. Right. And I and I think that we do rely on our, our schools you know, where kids are all day to be able to respond to so many needs that children have. And that is really hard um, for kids and for schools. Um, but I do think, you know, we, we spent a long time um, in, in, to get to the understanding that children can't learn when they're hungry. Right. And now we have the free and reduced lunch programs and, and some districts have free lunch for everyone. Um, and I think just as true as that is that children can't learn when they're stressed, when they're depressed, um, when they are you know, struggling internally. And I'm not saying that we turn schools into uh, treatment settings, but that part of positive development, part of uh, academic growth is positive child development as well. And the way we recognize that for kids in our, at the younger age, we have to make sure that we're recognizing that in our curriculum and, and approach to staffing and expectations for teachers and students follows that throughout the, the grade school lifespan.
3: Again, you've been hearing Sarah Egan here on Where We Live. She's Connecticut's child advocate. Thank you, Sarah, for joining us today on this important conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Vignesh Subramanian has been here, a sophomore at SUNY Stony Brook University from Wilton, Connecticut. He helped advocate for state lawmakers to pass a bill that was signed into law last year uh, requiring schools permit students K through 12 to take at least up to two mental health wellness days uh, per school year. Uh, Vignesh, stick around uh, for the next uh, part of our show. Uh, Coming up, we're going to hear again uh, to hear more about uh, the importance of this initiative and what more needs to be done to support uh, youth and their mental health. Again, that conversation continuing after the break. You can join us too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Thank you. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy nall Connecticut is now among just a few states that allow K-12 through students to take time off school for their mental health. So what are appropriate reasons parents should weigh before allowing their child to take a mental health wellness day? Joining us now on Zoom is Barb Solish, Director of Youth and Young Adult Initiatives at NAMI. That's the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Barb, welcome to our show.
5: Thank you so much for having me. We've seen in in
3: recent years uh, more conversation about in the public about mental health. And so I wanted to get your take on uh, this proposal now law in our state that allows school students to take up to two mental health wellness days, why it's important.
5: Absolutely. So if you were feeling, you know, physically crummy, you wouldn't hesitate to take a day to rest and recover. And the same really goes for emotional well-being. We should all be caring for our mental health like we do for our physical health, because at the end of the day, mental health is health. health. Uh, These days I think can be very helpful for children who struggle with depression, anxiety, or other mental health and learning issues, or really even kids who've just had a really rough week. Um, So for parents, you know, if a child comes to you wanting to stay home, you can take that opportunity um, to do a little detective work. It's actually a chance for you to check in and see how a child's doing. Um, Talking through why a child wants to take a break can help you get a better idea of what they're going through and help you decide if a mental health day could actually help them.
3: You know, parents may wonder again, you know, when you're just talking about, you know, doing some detective work and helping uh, figure out if if this short break is needed for their child. But there seems to be this tension where, you know, some educators believe that, you know, children get that support when they're in school. And so, you know. If there's a scenario where your child doesn't want to go to school and and they're dealing with something uncomfortable you know what is helpful and what can actually you know make the situation worse if they're avoiding something that may be happening to them at school
5: that's exactly right so mental health days can be positive for any kid just as long as taking one doesn't make their situation worse by what you're saying reinforcing avoidance So, for example, if they're staying home because they're trying to get out of something they're very anxious about, that may actually reinforce their anxiety and make a problem bigger than it was before. So, in that case, the goal is to help give kids coping skills. They need to manage those anxieties. Now, if they're consistently struggling, that's the time to reach out for more intensive care and help.
3: When we think about these mental health wellness days, that this isn't a treatment for mental illness per se, but giving them a chance uh, to take a break. But I'm wondering if you can talk more about the need to connect young people uh, with additional services like therapy. And, you know how to navigate that conversation with your
5: child? Absolutely, it can be a tough one to do. So. Like I was saying, so if a, if a kid is pushing to stay home too often or asking to call in sick very frequently, that's a good time to have a conversation with them about what they're feeling. So one trick to do that is asking open-ended questions about their days and their relationships, which may give you more insight into what's going on so you can address it. So for instance, saying something like, hey, I've noticed you're not seeing your friend Julie anymore what happened versus asking a yes or no question like are you okay now if there is a more serious issue at hand if there's bullying if there's depression if they're showing signs of anxiety it's time to reach out for help so you can connect with the school Um, you can talk to your pediatrician who really are the unsung heroes of the mental health system or a mental health professional to help get your kid the care that they do need
3: what do you think of, the, again, here in, in Connecticut, the requirement is up to two days uh, that students can take from mental health wellness? I think when this was being debated and Vignesh is still with us, I think the proposal was up to four days. And so, again, there just seems to be this uh, this tension uh, where, you know, some believe, you know, should we be allowing children to take um, uh, additional absences from school? Uh, Vignesh, uh, tell us again about how this got crafted. Wasn't it from four to two and, you know, this this ar- arbitrary number?
2: Uh, that's right. Um, the original proposal was for mental health days a year, uh, modeling some of the other states that had uh, passed this legislation, like Oregon, like Utah, and like in a form Minnesota. Um, but I think uh, what we ended up with is is adequate, um, if not enough. Uh, I think mental health days are, you know, the provision of mental health days um, is enough to at least start a conversation about. Um, excuse me, the provision of two mental health days is enough to start a conversation about why a child may may need to take them um, and alert school professionals as to the underreported needs behind um, their taking a mental health day. I would point out that uh, like many states, Connecticut is a state that requires mental health education in schools. And so the use of mental health days by, by kids and teens is not entirely uninformed. We can rely on students to some extent um, to understand their own symptoms, understand the conditions and the uh, the traumatic experiences and the relationships that they're going through, uh, and be able to uh, decide to take a mental health day um, on their own with, with consistent and logical reasoning. Um, I think uh, as the proposal was being drafted, there was, of course, concern about absenteeism um, and false excuses for taking mental health days, and those are, of course, valid, um, but to be able to start the conversation with a sufficient number of mental health days um, is also critically important. And I think that's why uh, having two mental health days a year is still an essential first step. Uh, and it's a good one that lawmakers took last year.
3: Catherine's calling in from Hamden. Catherine, go ahead.
6: Hi, I was just calling. I um, am a mom of three myself. I am a hairstylist. So I speak with a lot of families all the time and I think we're missing a key component of, of what's contributing to, the stress and anxiety a lot of these children are suffering from. And that's the pressure that we as a society and as parents are putting on them to get into that Ivy League or get into that one school, that higher-end school. You know, seventh, eighth grade, we're starting with college advisors and, um, you know, people who are looking at their resumes. So they're very aware of what this means to them and how, how every little grade or misstep could impact them later. And I think you know, we need to educate families and parents, um, and kind of take a step back and focus on what's important. What are we doing with these kids? Are we, are we grooming them to get into an Ivy League? Or are we, are we raising them to be good humans and, um, you know, good people and, and caring about them? I mean, the the whole purpose of education is, is caring about these kids. And I think by Putting so much pressure on them from such a young age and making every little, you know, edu- edu- every grade matter for them, um, we're forgetting that they're people and that they're more than their grades and they're more than where they get into college. And I think, you know, p- parents need to take the step back and accept some responsibility for some of these pressures mm-hmm. and um, stresses that these kids are under.
3: And thank you, Catherine, uh, for calling in. You make an excellent point. Uh, Barb Solis, did you want to respond to our caller?
5: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a, a, a very real issue, Catherine. You know, it's interesting, though, because we actually did a recent poll of parents and caregivers, a national poll, and we saw the highest number, an 89 percent of parents thought that mental health matters more than the academic achievement or their child, which I, I personally can't say the same when I was in school. And I think that really offers up the opportunity to do things like mental health education, uh, which we do know increases knowledge and help seeking behaviors, um, and enact mental health days, like we're talking about, but it also, um, you know, opens the door to make investments in what we call school based and school linked mental health care. So school-based mental health care means bringing in those trained mental health professionals into schools. And school linked mental health services connect kids and families to more intensive resources in the community so yes we as we've been talking about we need to do so much more than just mental health days um you know but we also need to do things like as we've been talking about bringing in more nurses social workers psychologists and then also really connecting the schools to the resources that are in the community Um, And then also transforming what those resources are, because they're not always there, unfortunately.
3: That's Barb Solish, Director of Youth and Young Adult Initiatives at the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Barb, thank you for joining us today. We appreciate it.
5: Thanks so much for having me.
3: And it was great to hear from Vignesh Subramanian, who is from Wilton, Connecticut. He's now a sophomore at SUNY Stony Brook University. Uh, he was among those advocating uh, for better support for uh, children's mental health in our state, and also this proposal for uh, up to two mental health wellness days for K-12 through Connecticut students. Vignesh, thank you for your time today as well.
2: Thank you, Lucy. It was good to be here.
3: You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Today's show produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical director is Kat Pastor. We'll be back tomorrow.